When I first started producing these pieces for Unstoppable, it was because I wanted to speak with tenacious people and because I was inspired by Zoe, who has proven so many wrong or continues to show what she's capable of. It was, I can't remember the day. I remember where I was standing in a hospital room between two cots, I guess, although they felt like cages because they're hospital beds, they're made of metal and the sides are pulled up. And, and there I stood between these two beds as a neurologist who had taken a few days to get to us. And I understand academic hospital and lots of conversations based on MRIs and reflux and potential seizures and who knows why she looks like she's stopping breathing. And what I didn't know was obviously that a lot of these doctors have conversations behind closed doors, between rounds, in passages, and that's why it had taken him so long to get to us. But what he said to us as I stood between what feels like metal cages with Ruenda sitting in front of me, I'll never forget him saying, she is a plane we cannot fix. Don't expect much from her. And I felt like he'd already given up. I was not about to give up. And as we were to find out, neither was Zoe. This story began over four years ago. And the reason I'm only just beginning to tell it is because Zoe keeps defying doctor's predictions for her life. Having a daughter with special needs has opened our eyes, our ears, and our hearts tenfold. Zoe is undoubtedly my inspiration, and I hope through her story and the stories that my guests share on this podcast, we can motivate one another to rise up against the odds. I hope that Unstoppable will eventually become a community of tenacious people, and that we'll get the opportunity to share openly with one another. In this episode of Unstoppable, I chat with Brandon Beek, who at 16 years old had everything he could have wanted. A promising gymnast, a loving family, and a home near the beach. Life was in some respects idyllic, until an accident changed his life forever. That was roughly eight years ago, and a lot has happened in Brandon's life since then. He's a full-time athlete, a business owner, and runs the first-of-its-kind rehab center in South Africa, but I'll let him tell you more about that. Brandon inspires me, and he gives me strength to keep on keeping on. I'm sure his story will do the same for you. Doctors may well have told us that Zoe is not a plane we can fix. And while I am not here to fix her, I am here believing that she gets to decide what her limitations are and nobody else. I hope you enjoy this two-part finale to season one of Unstoppable. From Uncover Extraordinary Media, this is Unstoppable. Let the journey begin. Tell me more about your family. Tell me about growing up. Um, I'm a Cape Townian through and through. I was actually born in Greenpoint and uh, over the years moved all around Atlantic Seaboard from Greenpoint to Seapoint and um, high school ended up in living in Camps Bay. 
So I've my whole life's been around living at the shore and um, going down to the beach ever so often. And yeah, we were quite a we're quite a knit family. Just just the three of us. Uh, obviously, I do have a, um, an extended family, but the three of us generally we we were very tight knit in everything that we did. I had a very close relationship uh, with my parents. Uh, my mom worked from home and. Uh, did a, did a lot of the, the parenting and the raising while my dad went out to work. And, um, yeah, I, because I was an only child, I was spoiled rotten, <laughs> but, uh, I hope to, to think that I wasn't, uh, wasn't a brat. Uh, my parents raised me really well. What do you mean by, by spoiled rotten? What does that involve? Well, you know, being an only child, um, you need some. You need a lot of stim, um, stimulating. You know, uh, I don't have any siblings or to entertain me or whatever. So if I wanted a toy or wanted games and stuff, uh, generally my parents would do the best that they could um, to give me what I wanted or what my heart really desired. But they would only give it to me. Um, through hard work and as a form of repayment for uh, maybe achieving through my sports or um, doing well in my schooling or something like that. So it was almost like a, um, you know, you put effort in and you receive. So that's, okay. uh, that's, that's kind of how I've always grown up as um, I've in a way got everything that I've uh, wanted when I was younger and um but that doesn't really mean that my parents were well off uh, my parents were often struggling with <laughs> uh peanut butter on toast for breakfast lunch yeah. and supper but yet yeah. my life seemed perfect through my eyes you yeah. know they did as uh, everything they could to give me the best quality of life possible and the only thing i had to put in was hard work in whatever mm-hmm. i I did. So tell me about sporting activities then. Um, I assume as a only child, they enrolled you in a fair amount of things to try and get rid of some of your energy. Yeah. So I was quite a, quite a quiet, introverted child. Um, and I was not very physical at all. <laughs> so I tried so many different types of sports. I tried soccer. Um, I was absolutely useless at that. Um, I tried cricket in primary school. That went badly after one incident where I forgot my ball box. Um, oh, and you can kind of imagine what happened there. So uh, <laughs> that was the last time I ever played cricket. Uh, I'm too soft for rugby. I'm way too gentle and way too small. Uh, I tried judo, but I'm way too flexible. So they would, uh, no one could put me down and ended up just tiring out and I'd lose. Um, I was, I was absolutely useless. My dad was Western province with water polo and like first team, like everything, rugby and cricket. He was this athlete and this brilliant swimmer and everything. He was a, um, a lifesaver. And then he had this, this boy who was absolutely useless on the sports field. (laughs) Um, and then we actually found out about gymnastics. So because I was flexible, naturally, for some reason, I was just hypermobile, uh, my parents decided to enroll me in a trampling and tumbling gymnastics club in town. And 
And uh, I enjoyed it for a little bit. I kind of got into it. And one day after I competed at a competition in Oturin, I saw some autistic gymnasts. And they were swinging on the parallel bars and swinging on the high bars. And as my mom always tells me, um, I turned around to my mom and I, I looked at them and I said, my mom, that's what I want to do. And that day they walked over to my coach, um, Alfie Stricker. And that next week I was at their club enrolling to mm-hmm. be an autistic gymnast. The rest is history with an eight year career in gymnastics, um, training two to five hours a day, six days a week. Yeah. Till the, till the age of 16. So that was my, my love. And, um, yeah. I, yeah, my life surrounded my gymnastics pretty much. Uh, eight years is a very long time to put into a sport. And clearly you should prove to your parents that, that it was just finding the right sport and the right, and the right environment for you to, for you to thrive. And you, and you thrived in gymnastics, right? Um, you competed. You 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 were part of a, a youth gymnastics tw- uh, team. Talk me talk me through some of those gymnastics achievements. Yeah, so it's um, <laughs> gymnastics taught me almost everything I know today. It shaped me into the the young man I am today. I would say, and it's quite funny because I look back on my life quite a lot and I see how people doubted a lot of my abilities. And gymnastics was one of them. I gone to tumbling and trampolining and they were like, okay, cool. This is great. And the moment I started autistic, they said, no, this kid's too weak. There's no chance he's going to be good in this. He's flexible. Yes, but he's not strong enough. So he's not going to get far as an autistic gymnast. And, um, I was determined. I loved it. I put all my time and all my effort into it and, um, it paid off. Uh, I made Western province. I medaled at Western province, I'd say seven years in a row. That next year, that yeah, my second year to gymnastics, I medaled at the Western Province Comp. Generally, in my competitions, not to blow my own horn, but I would gold. I would come first. I was a really good gymnast. Later on in my career, I competed at national level, and I think I got two gold and one silver. So I ended up being arguably one of the best gymnasts in the club, and that all came from everyone not believing in me. You know, at the end of the day, if you believe in yourself enough, you can overcome anything. And I absolutely loved it. Mm. Brandon, then through those achievements, as you rack them up year in and year out, you must have had some pretty steep aspirations as well when it came to gymnastics. I had big dreams as a gymnast. My dream was to be an Olympic gymnast, uh, a pro tier and represent my country, uh, South Africa. And I would have done anything to achieve that dream. Um, in 2012, I was training for the first time at junior Olympic level. So I went from just doing Western province and nationals. Now I was for the first time doing junior Olympics and that was a big jump for me. So there was a lot of pressure on it, but I was, but I was up for the challenge. But what's crazy is that all of this, that, all of this that took up my time, I had to now balance with school because I was also like an AB student. Right. And I had my music, which I took as a subject as well. And I had dance as well. So I was a very practical individual. So, Wow. 
you're training at junior Olympic level yeah. during the Olympic year must have been quite an electrifying experience. Yeah, it's when you have your idols literally on TV uh, kind of setting that standard for you of what you aim to do and what you dream to do. And now it's your first step in the door, you know, in that direction of what you want to do to join them up there. Um, and it's it, it, was, it was a lot of pressure. It was electric, but it was a lot of pressure. And together with the training then, my assumption, having worked with sports teams in the in the past, you were quite possibly keeping your eye on your diet and how much you sleep. And you make a lot of sacrifices. If you want to get to the top, you've got to make lots of sacrifices. And, you know, things like um, going out with friends and partying and the, the whole social life, you end up really putting on the side just for the the, the bigger picture. Yeah to achieve that goal. Brandon, do you remember what the final training session involved that afternoon? You made your way to training, I'm assuming after school. Yeah. So it was after school, long drive, head from school, back home, get changed in Camps Bay, then drive from Camps Bay all the way through to Monte Vista, which is a nice 45 minute drive, uh, all to go train. And felt like a normal training day as, as it always is. But there was this, underlying pressure which really threw me off my game i was going through a little bit of trauma that week to be honest i don't often speak about it but that same that previous week actually my godfather passed away and my dog died and there were a couple things that happened that were really throwing me off also at the time i had a competition that saturday and now i'm training on the wednesday and i don't have my high bar routine under the belt yet and i feel unsteady i feel uncertain of myself i'm uh, worried and stressed probably have a little bit of lack of sleep because of work because of work and schooling but it's, it's not stuff i haven't dealt with before you know and uh, it's crazy how one moment of losing that concentration can can really change everything yeah and it did change a lot of things yeah it was that that's one moment I was on the parallel bars and doing my normal routine. I went for a back somersault to smile off the side. And I guess, guess that one lapse of concentration and I released the bars too early. And I ended up missing the safety mat and landed on the only meter by meter area of concrete. I landed on my head and there was a, a shockwave which went through my entire body. And in an instant, my whole body just went limp. I was lying on the floor, my stomach, half my body on the mat, half my body on this cold concrete floor, and I just couldn't move. The only thing that was going through my head at the time was, get the hell up, you've got a routine to finish, you've got a competition on Saturday, just stop slacking and just get back up. And I just didn't get up. I was conscious the entire time, but laying there i knew there was something wrong because the longer i laid there the more aches and pains started to grow in my arms and uh my neck specifically um everyone was in a state around me and panicking and running around and um unknowingly i was i was lying in a pool of blood when i hit when i hit the ground or while laying there 
uh, everyone was worrying because they were scared that the blood was coming maybe from my chest, that maybe my chest landed on a pin, which was holding one of like the parallel bars or one of the apparatus down. Uh, but in fact, they didn't know that I split my head open, which led me to get 11 stitches later on. Hmm. So everyone was worried about the blood, but no one would have ever thought that I was lying there with a broken spine and uh, paralyzed from the chest down. So that one moment, one lapse of concentration costed me my, my entire life prior to that. 16 years of everything I've worked towards and it was all gone in an instant. Who was the first person at your side, Brandon? Do you remember? First person by my side was my, my best mate, Dominic Sieber. Um, my coaches came to aid me. Um, Alfie Shrika and, and Enrico had ran around getting towels and calling around for assistance and they were helping, helping me in every way they could. But all that I wanted was my friend Dominic to come sit next to me on the springboards and crack some jokes with me. I'm lying there in a pool of blood, possibly like with the thoughts of, is this like my last couple breaths? And all I wanted was for him to crack jokes with me and to make me laugh and to smile and telling him that I'll be okay, I'll be fine. Like, don't worry, I'm, I'm fine. That's all I wanted was him by my side. Um, yeah, and he kept me calm. Yeah, I'll never forget that moment when he was by my side. It just felt like time stood still, and it was literally just us, us talking and banter the whole time. Lying there, lying there on the ground with a smile on my face. Who would have thought? <laughs> no, you've just made me laugh, and I was so close to crying. You've just turned the mood again. Um, Brandon, how long did it take for them to get you to hospital? It's in Monte Vista, the N1 City Netcare Hospital, I'm guessing, is the closest. Yeah, so they called my parents. My parents came through from Camps Bay to Monte Vista in about 15 minutes. Um, my dad, being a ex-lifesaver, uh, had obviously done a, a basic paramedics course. So he went into lifesaver mode and tried to kind of stabilize me and check my vitals and check if I was okay, check my sensation and all those things. While that was happening, um, one of the gymnasts has a friend who who runs their own private like ambulance, if I'm correct, uh, like an emergency service. So they called them after the emergency services were pri uh, were called prior because 45 minutes into waiting for paramedics, we found out that the the first set of ambulance was stuck in a four car pileup. Oh no. So I was laying there for about 45 minutes with no one at my aid yet. No one wants to touch me. And then uh, this girl's friends with their private ambulance come through. And thank God this man was, he was a, a godsend, I swear. Uh, found out he was an ex-Afghan Reiki. So he's just been dealing with, with soldiers in Afghanistan and stuff and, uh, you know, bomb victims and everything. So he's seen a lot. Everyone wanted to log roll me to stabilize me. And he said, no, don't touch him. Put the splint board under him and don't even move his neck. Don't move anything. They got me into their ambulance. They got me off to Netcare Hospital in, um, um, yeah, in N1 City. And they, they stabilized me. They cut my favorite tights, which I was so sad. 
I was lying there on the bed and the only thing I was worried about was my favorite tights. I'm like, no, I have to cut these things now, honestly. <laughs> um, not really seeing the bigger picture. And then they went <laughs> on to um, stitching up my head and screwing in this clamp into my skull, which mm. put me in traction. So they held 2.5 kilos off this contraption, which realigned my spine. And I was in traction, lying on my back, high on morphine and painkillers, looking at the roof probably for a good four days after that. What do you remember from that time being in the hospital? Not much. <laughs> the morphine mm. works like a charm. I can tell you that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that stuff it kicks you hard. So I, I, I've got some random glimpses. Um, like I remember some of my family coming to visit me. Uh, my aunt and uncle, Sherry and Jacques, um, I was looking through a mirror. There was a mirror right above me and that mirror showed what was in front of me and kind of the people around me. So if I couldn't see them bending over me, looking at me straight in the face, I would see them through the mirror. I remember them clearly. I remember Dominic and my gym friends. I remember one of my other friends, Nikolai Schutter. I've got these little puzzle pieces which i've never been able to put together probably because a combination of trauma and the morphine that whole time of being in hospital i can't remember much of it to be honest um probably for the better mm. all i remember well all that i've heard was that apparently we broke the record of the most amount of visitors i think in one day we had about 80 visitors come and see me wow um, I had people from school coming through. My headmaster came to see me. I had uh, my gym friends, my old primary school friends. I had family friends. Uh, people came from all over. And it was now looking back, it's moments like that where you actually realize how many people actually care for you. You know, the people who actually love you and how many people there are out there who support you. Yeah. I was, would echo that. I was going to say, what a testimony to the the lives that you have touched, um, and I know you're touching many more still with with more of your story, Brandon. So four days, you say you lay in traction, but surely they didn't just let you out of the hospital. How long did you stay in hospital for? I wasn't in hospital for too long. Uh, okay, let's let's start it at uh, laid on my back for four days, and then they moved me to UCT ICU uh, at Krutskir. Mm -hmm. And there they operated on me. With the intention of doing what? With the intention of uh, fusing my T1 and C6 or T1 to C6 um, vertebra. So they would have a plate over those three vertebra on my neck, uh, fusing them and then... Um, yeah, kind of stabilizing me thereafter and getting me ready to go to inpatient rehabilitation. Okay. The operation was supposed to be two hours. It ended up being four hours. Um, they found some small shards stuck in my spinal cord. So they had to pluck those out and kind of glue up the holes and went on a little bit longer than expected. My parents were worried sick. Operation was a success. And over the next day or two, I was just concentrating on trying to sit up and uh, I will never forget my first meal after living for four to five days on jelly. I had my first solid meal, mm. which was wheat mix. <laughs> <laughs> Not much more solid, but it was the best <laughs> bowl of wheat picks I have tasted in my life. I was so happy. 
<laughs> I was so over jelly. Um, <laughs> the physiotherapist and the doctors said to me the the operation was a success, and they told my parents that. Well, in their words, we need to get this kid up on his feet and get him into rehab as soon as possible. He's still strong, and we need to use that. Finally, a glimmer of hope, right? There is much more to this story. We'll be right back. So I was in the hospital for just over a week, and they moved me over to life rehabilitation in uh, Advents of Pilate in Pinelands. And that's where I started my, what was it, eight weeks of inpatient rehab. At that stage, Brandon, what was the diagnosis? At that stage, they diagnosed me a C6, C7 complete spinal cord injury. I had no sensation from the middle of my chest down. I had missing sensation on my arms as well. I had... uh, pretty much no function of my hands and minimal function of my arms. Uh, I needed assistance with dressing and feeding and um, washing and pretty much everything. I was incapable of doing anything by myself, let alone just even going to the bathroom. Mm. And the doctors pretty much said that I would be like this for life and I would have to accept it. Um, And that was weeks into inpatient rehab as well. We saw some small improvements and I started to gain a little bit of function and strength back in my arms. But towards the end, that was still their diagnosis. They said, you're going to be like this for the rest of your life and you're going to have to accept it. Can you tell me, Brandon, what did the rehab, those eight weeks that you spent at Vincent Pilotti, entail? Uh, It entailed uh, an hour or two of working with a physiotherapist and occupational therapist. I'd, I'd say I think about four days, four, four to five days of the week. So generally it was just socializing with the other patients around there, doing lots of therapy, having visitors, um, and kind of just getting used to coping with this new way of life. Uh, a lot of the time was spent kind of actually doing more therapy and training by myself while I'm in my hospital bed, uh, sitting there, trying to pick up jelly babies and hold little balls. And my parents bringing me these different devices and different things that I could use to continue my therapy after and in between my, my sessions. Because the more work you put in, the more you're going to get out. That's the way I've always seen it. It's the way I believe life works. So, yeah, and I'd, I'd, it was pretty much just therapy, therapy, therapy and, uh, and visitors. And it was absolutely exhausting. So, of course, we know that from a neurological standpoint, and this I've learned with Zoe, that it's not just the signal being sent from the brain down to the fingertips, but as you're quite rightly saying, if you're doing occupational therapy and there's stimulation that's happening at your hand, that nerve sensation can send signal back to your brain and kind of go, I'm here, I'm alive, I can work. Um, And I imagine that's the type of thing that they would be trying to get done in an intensive therapy environment. Yeah. But together with that, you're 16 years old. You've been training at the highest gymnastics level you've ever trained at. How did they balance that in a therapy session? Did they, Do you feel they spent enough time on, on the mental side? Do you think they spent any time on the mental side? Did they not need to spend time on the mental stuff? Well, for me, uh, thankfully, I'm quite an optimistic person. 
like I said, I've always got this. I've always had this view that what you put in, you get out, and you're not gonna make a change unless you do it yourself, uh, or unless you go out and you do it. <laughs> so I was quite motivated and uh, determined when it came to my therapy and my training, uh, as I've been in a lot of things in my life. I did have down days as anyone would for sure thankfully i never went through a state of depression uh i know some some people hit that that depression dip really hard yeah but i tend to have a day or two and pull myself straight because i feel like i'm wasting time if i don't i understand so and I, yeah so i i pushed through uh all of my exercise with quite uh, with a lot of tenacity and thankfully it was that gymnastics background well if you if i put it this way my gymnastics got me into that position because my gymnastics was going to get me out of that position. What an interesting standpoint. What an interesting perspective to have on it. Um, Brandon, okay, so it was eight weeks at Vincent Pilotti to eventually, I'm, I'm assuming it's like, okay, it's getting too expensive or they say this is as much as we can do from you. But you go back home. You guys live in Camp Spay. Or, yeah. Then what? Yeah, so... The truth is, it was uh, it was that was the only amount that medical aid is willing to cover. So that's the cut of time, and they send you home. Uh, no matter if you're ready or you're not, you have to go home to figure it out yourself. So I went back home to a home in Camps Bay, hmm. um, and as people surely know, Camps Bay is on a hill, <laughs> on an incline, yep. uh, steep roads. Uh, our house was on three levels. We did yeah. not have a lift. And I had to be uh, lifted upstairs constantly to get in the house and out the house and uh, to different levels and different rooms. So it really took my independence away. Mm. Uh, not only could I not do things physically uh, on a day-to-day basis, but I couldn't even like move around some places of my own home or get out the house by myself. Or It was quite a a tough time of my life because at the age of 16, all you want to do is start, you know, spreading your wings. All of my friends are getting their learners or kind of getting more independence and getting out and about and I'm stuck at home. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to Unstoppable and feel free to let me know how each episode resonates with you. Uh, You could drop me an email, hello at uncoverextraordinary.co.za or, of course, connect via social media. And in so doing, we grow this little community of ours. As I said, this is a two-part episode and I encourage you to click on through and listen to part two right now. Unstoppable is produced by Uncover Extraordinary Media. Check them out, www.uncoverextraordinary.co.za. Music by Eric Williams and Epidemic Sound and overseen by executive producer, the lovely Ruenda Lewitz. Go ahead, join the Unstoppable community on Instagram at the Unstoppable Pod or on Twitter at unstoppable underscore pod. We'll speak again very soon because episode two is waiting for you right now. <laughs> Until then... Take care of yourself. Bye.